morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. Let me uh, extend a special welcome if you're a visitor. We're glad that you're with us. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Before we get started, I did want to make one announcement. You uh, will have seen uh, in the last few weeks in the bulletin the announcement in there about officer nominations. So if you are a member of Grace Covenant, let me encourage you to be thinking very carefully and praying about whom you might nominate uh, to be an elder or deacon here at the church. Officer nominations are an incredibly important time for us as we seek to uh, nominate and pick the people that God would have lead us. So I would urge you and encourage you to really think carefully about that. Uh, the nominations you'll see in the bulletin are due on January 7th, so that's coming up soon. <clears throat> if you're just joining us this morning, you're coming uh, to us right at the end of Advent and almost at the end of our Advent season as we've been in our Advent series, as we've been in Luke chapters 1 and 2, and if you want to be uh, looking there, you'll find our text this morning on page 856 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. But for the last few weeks and on into next week, we've been looking at the story of Christmas through the eyes of the different characters in Luke chapter 1 and 2. So we've, we've looked at it through the eyes of Mary and what she had to say to us, and through the eyes of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And this week we're going to see this story uh, as it is proclaimed to us by angels. Next week we're going to see this as it's reflected on by Simeon in Luke chapter 2. So we come this morning to Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 21. Let me pray for us. And then we'll read together. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your word, and we ask that you would open it up to us. This word is your gift to us. And we come this morning to what, for many of us, is a very familiar passage of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, in a manger, in a barn, in obscurity, yet in hidden glory. Would you open our eyes this morning? Would you change us even this morning by the power of your Spirit? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. There's a word of the Lord is given for our good and for his glory. Here's one thing I want us to see this morning as we look at this text, this last Advent Sunday, this Sunday before Christmas. I think we see something uh, important and significant here for us about what it means if we're going to get Christmas. If we're going to get Christmas this year. If it's going to really resonate, if we're going to be able to hear it, if we're going to be able to see it, if we're going to get Christmas. And we see it. um, We see to get it here, I think we have to do two things. Here's what we're going to look at. That first, we must see Christmas from two angles instead of only one. And then we must take what we see and personalize it. Okay, those two things. We must learn to see Christmas from two angles instead of one. And we must take what we see and personalize it. So first, must see Christmas from two angles instead of one. There are two views, two angles in this passage about what's going on. There's a view from below and a view from above. Okay, let's look from the view from below at first. Look at verses 1 through 7. Just scan back over those for a second. And look at the situation that we find as the story opens up. And one of the questions I think that screams out in this passage is this one. Who is in control? Okay, who is really running this show? And another way of asking that is, who is God? Who is God here? Verses 1 through 7. And I think if you were living in that time and I were living in that time, and as we see it reflected in these first few verses, the answer to that question, who is God? Well, it sure seems to be Rome is God. And more specifically, Caesar Augustus is God. Caesar Augustus is the emperor at the time. Augustus means majestic or venerable. And in Augustus' time and the time of the Roman emperors, it was a sign of respect to the emperor to declare that Caesar is Lord that Caesar is Savior. The Roman empires were even uh, viewed as being, in some sense, divine. Caesar's Lord. He is God. And look what he does. He snaps his finger, and the entire known world jumps up at his beckoning call. Because we see right here, as the story opens up, that he has declared that there is to be a census in order to tax the Roman Empire. So, He gives the command, and everyone has to go back to their hometown to be registered so that they can pay their taxes, so they can take account of the people in the empire. And Rome is in control. The economy, their financial reality, everything in the hands of Rome, in the hands of Augustus. It seems like Rome is God. And it also seems, I think this also comes through in these first few verses, at least as I look at it, that God, the real God, He seems powerless and silent. Where is he? What is going on? I mean, think about Mary and Joseph. They, like everyone else in the Roman world, must get up from uh, their own town of Nazareth, and they must travel three days, about 90 miles, um, to go to Bethlehem. This is Mary. She's nine months pregnant. So three days of walking or three days of riding on a donkey, uh, about to give birth. And then she shows up in Bethlehem after this long journey, and uh, she finds out that there is no room for them in the inn. Okay, what would you be thinking right about now? 
I mean, if it were me, I would be thinking, you have got to be kidding me. I did not sign up for this, right? I mean, nine months ago, an angel showed up in my room and said, you know, you're, you're gonna, you are going to give birth to the Son of God. It's going to be this amazing birth like no other, a child like no other. He is going to be Lord. He's going to be Savior. And here I am, nine months pregnant, three days on the road, and now I show up, and there is no place for us to even get a bed. And I'm going to go out into a barn and give birth. And I'm going to take this newborn baby, this supposed king, and I'm going to wrap him up and put him on straw in a manger. You have got to be kidding me. We think about him born in the stable, laid in a manger. We, maybe we have these Thomas Kincaid glasses on. Okay, you can see the, the gentle light filtering into the stable and the cattle are lowing and the, the donkey is there kneeling beside Jesus and probably not much like what it would actually be like to give birth in a barn trying to buy a bunch of animals. We try to go to places that are extremely clean to have children where there's no infection, where there's a doctor, where there's somebody that knows what they're doing. And here's Mary with all the smells and all the sounds uh, of life in a barn baby born here. What is going on? Uh, some of you will remember the story. A couple years ago, Christmas during Advent, uh, some family friends sent us a, a nativity set, a kid's nativity set with his little sturdy uh, nativity pieces. And Caroline at the time, our daughter, our oldest child, was two. And our son was just a few months old. And I can remember her, her playing with these. I remember coming into the room once, and, and most of the pieces for the nativity set were missing. We started looking around, and and we found uh, Caroline had been playing with this little toy dump truck. And we opened up the back, and there were Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And I remember thinking, he doesn't belong in a dump truck. Right? I'm not sure my two-year-old really got that at that moment. But I remember thinking, Jesus in a dump truck, there is something that just does not fit here. He does not belong here. He does not belong in the back of this truck. He does not belong in a manger, in a barn, in obscurity. King of kings, Lord of lords, born here. Seems like Rome's in control. It seems like God is silent and distant. It's interesting, when God does speak through these angels, who does he come to? He comes to shepherds. Now, again, with our Thomas Kincaid glasses, we think this uh, beautiful pastoral scene with these marvelous shepherds, but uh, it more likely, given... Uh, those first few centuries after Jesus, based on the writings we have, shepherds were not highly regarded. Uh, there, there's uh, some evidence that they were not even allowed to go worship in the temple because they were ceremonially unclean. They lived outdoors. Their word was not accepted in court. They were considered to be liars and thieves. And God sends angels to them to tell them about the birth of this king. What is going on? If you think back to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, for example, if you think of some of the things that the prophets have said about the coming of this king, listen to this. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Really? Born here? Because you see, this was the first Charlie Brown Christmas. Right? Have you all seen Charlie Brown Christmas? Opening scene, Charlie Brown's walking through the snow with his buddy Linus. In this cartoon, he says, Linus, I think there must be something wrong with me. He says, Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy, and I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. 
So this begins this journey of Charlie Brown trying to understand Christmas. He's invited to be the director of the kids' Christmas play, and he's uh, an utter failure at that, and everybody's depressed. So what does he do? In an attempt to regain some Christmas cheer, he, he sets out, uh, and he goes to the Christmas tree lot, and he's going to buy a Christmas tree to you know, bring the Christmas spirit. You remember the Christmas tree that he gets? It's a little lame branch sticking up on a little wooden stand, and he brings it back, and the kids put one little red ornament on it and just kind of flops over. It's a Charlie, Charlie Brown Christmas. A couple years ago, um, a, a clothing store out of Philadelphia called Urban Outfitters on their website sold replicas of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And, and here's what their little ad said on the web. Good grief. Learn the true meaning of Christmas with Charlie Brown's classic pathetic Christmas tree. Leave it bare or dress it up all fancy. The tree is an exact replica of the tree from the famous cartoon made of wire branches and plastic needles with a crisscross wooden base. The bendable branches allow you to make it look just how you want. Super pathetic or just kind of pathetic? The tree comes with one red Christmas ball ornament. The Charlie Brown Christmas. And Mary and Joseph caught in the middle of the Charlie Brown Christmas. Weakness, apparent failure, God apparently gone, the absence of glory. That is the view of Christmas from below. Maybe it's our view of Christmas. Maybe this Christmas is a hard Christmas for you. Maybe this year has been a hard year for you. And you look around and all you see is the view from below. The brokenness, the want. You look around and someone is God, but it doesn't seem to be the God. You look around and God seems to be silent and absent in your life. Charlie Brown Christmas and the view from below. There's another view that's given in this passage. It's the view from above. Look what happens as we pick up in verse 8 and through the rest of the passage. The story doesn't end there. And we get another view of what's going on, a different perspective, heaven's perspective, a view from above about what is really happening on this first Christmas day. Charlie Brown, when he's totally disillusioned with Christmas, even the Christmas tree, uh, is an utter failure at the dramatic climax of the Charlie Brown Christmas cartoon. He cries out and says this, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And up steps Linus. And he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And what does he do? He reads Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, the gospel according to Linus and the gospel according to St. Luke. And he tells about this visitation of these angels, verses 9 through 13, that out of the middle of the brokenness, the fallenness, the view from below to these shepherds out in the wilderness, angels appear declaring good news to them. Look at what it says in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. He says, This good news, I bring you good news of great joy. Uh, the Greek word that tra that's translated here is, I bring you good news. It's used many times in the New Testament, often translated as, I preach the gospel to you. The angels come and preach the good news that Jesus has come. He said, I have good news for you. They come and they speak of peace as the angel choir joins them in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. A peace that only God can give. 
And this would have resonated for a first century audience as they lived in the middle of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was brought by Caesar Augustus himself and the stability that he brought to their government and to the empire. Caesar Augustus is the one who brings peace, isn't he? No. Peace to you. Because the Pax Romana, the peace of the empire, as good as it was, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to bring true and lasting and from the heart peace with other people. Between family members and marriage partners and neighbors and enemies. It wasn't enough to bring people an interior peace, peace and healing on the inside. And most fundamentally, it wasn't enough to bring people the peace they need between themselves and our God. There's a, um, a contemporary of Luke who wrote this account for us, a Stoic Roman philosopher named uh, Epictetus, and, and here's what he said about the Rome's peace and the emperor's peace. He said, while the emperor may give peace from uh, war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more even than for outward peace. And we would add, and he cannot give peace between us and the real God. Angels come and say, peace to you. Then in verse 12, they tell the, they tell the, uh, the shepherds who the one, this one is that's coming. They say that he is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And this is the only place in the New Testament where those three titles appear in, in the same sentence, in the same address. Here's what one uh, commentator says, Savior points to his role as deliverer. And Christ points to his office in terms of being the promised anointed one of God. And Lord indicates his sovereign authority. Because you see, up till now in the view from below, it has sure seemed that Rome is Lord and Caesar is Lord. And the angels come and announce, no. Jesus is Lord. And he is Christ. And he is Savior. And though Augustus has been moving the world around like pawns on his chessboard, we find there is a deeper reality going on than even Caesar Augustus knew. What happens? He snaps his fingers, and everyone has to go back to their city where they're going to be taxed and where they're going to be uh, accounted for. But if we look back in one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Micah says this in Micah 5.2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. What's he say? Micah says the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. It's a little bitty town. And as Caesar Augustus flexes his imperial muscles, he is unwittingly, unknowingly doing the very bidding of God as God, through Augustus, sends Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem where the king is going to be born as was promised so long ago. From below, it seems that God is absent and powerless, that Rome is God. But we are reminded as we see this from the angel's perspective that God is at work and he is present and he is acting even when we do not see it. So if we're going to see Christmas and take it in rightly this year, we need to see it through both angles, both angles. Because the view from below is true, it's right, it's correct. The angels come, and that does not take away the hardness of this birth from Mary and Joseph. Mary still spent three days on a donkey, about to give birth. She still gave birth in a barn 
she's still going to go back to her hometown and face years of the whispers of the others in the town as they say, there's Mary and her little boy Jesus who was so conveniently born after they were married. All that still ahead of them. But it does, this view from above, gives hope and strength because it reminds that God is in this. That God is at work. Contrary to all appearances, contrary to everything Mary and Joseph might have been thinking at that moment, the angels come and remind everyone that God is at work here, even in the darkness, even in this view from below. God is at work using even this unbelievable birth to bring unbelievable good through this most humble and paradoxical of routes. There's a 4th century Christian named Theodotus of Ankara who, who understood how these two, these two uh, strands are tied together of this view from below and this view from above and what God is doing. Listen to what he says about Jesus' birth. Choosing for his birthplace an unknown village in a remote province, Jesus is born of a poor maiden and he accepts all that poverty implies. For he hopes by stealth to ensnare and save us. If Jesus had been born to high rank and amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said the world had been transformed by wealth. Suppose he had been the son of an emperor, then he would have chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, and then they would have said how useful it is to be powerful. Imagine him the son of a senator. It would have been said, look what can be accomplished by legislation. But in fact, what did he do? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that people would know that it was God alone who had changed the world. The view from below and the view from above, just as it did for Mary and Joseph, the view from above doesn't take away the struggle and the hard edges. It's the same for us. The fact that God is at work even now when we can't see him doesn't promise to take away illness, doesn't promise to restore financial uh, security, doesn't promise to make life smooth where it has been hard to prosper us in any outward way. In fact, some of us have found that following Jesus in the midst of this fallen world doesn't chase away the hardness at all, but in fact invites other hard things into our life as we follow Jesus. But, but, the view from above Seeing life from both these angles gives corrected and needed perspective for us as we see from both above and below because perspective is crucial, isn't it, in so many things. My wife, Elizabeth, was reading a book this week. I think it was a book on parenting, and the author told a story about uh, having met the son of a mountain climbing instructor uh, and guide who took groups up to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And he said that uh, when he was taking groups up to the top, when, they, when, when they'd get up in the morning at base camp and they'd, they'd come out for their ascent to the top, he said if it was a cloudy day, as I guess it often was, you couldn't see the top of the mountain. And he said if it was a cloudy day, most often the groups would not make it to the top. On the way up, they'd begin to bicker, they'd get frustrated, they'd get tired, and eventually they would give up and they'd turn around and come back. But he said on the days when they came out and it was a clear day and you could see the top, he said almost always those groups made it to the top. Because in the middle of all the struggle, in the middle of the hardship, they could look up and see where they were going and it kept them on the path. Because they had a different view, a different perspective, a view from above, a a view of the above as they looked up. That's what we find here 
for Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and for us. A view from below, but a view from above. There is more happening here than we even know. God is at work. So if we're going to take Christmas in again, we're going to have to learn how to see Christmas from two angles, two views instead of just one. And second, we've got to take what we see and we've got to personalize it. We've got to take what we see and appropriate it. Take it in. Digest it. Let it become part of us. Because we see three responses here of those who hear and see what is going on. And and, and they have different reactions. Uh, Everyone who hears about it, and this is the first group, and it it encompasses everybody. Look in verse 18. The the shepherds show up. They come and find Mary and Joseph. And apparently there's some group there and beyond that they tell their news to. It says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard it wondered. Okay, this is one of Luke's favorite words. It's translated in other places where he uses it as marveled, amazed, astonished. Every time we turn around in Luke, somebody is amazed at something that Jesus is doing. And there's nothing wrong with wonder and amazement. That's an appropriate response as the shepherds come and tell this story. Uh, Wonder, amazement, it's one of the delights of our life. I remember when my family and I moved here about four and a half years ago, uh, as we got towards our first Christmas here in Williamsburg, we heard people telling us about grand illumination down at Colonial Williamsburg and about how great it was. And we said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's great. And we'll go. We'll go down there and people dress up like they're from the 17th century and we'll fire off a few bottle rockets and it'll be a great way to you know, inaugurate Christmas. And so then we actually went to grand illumination and we were amazed. We were blown away. It was one of the most amazing fireworks displays we've ever seen. It was unbelievable. We were amazed, and the shepherds walk away amazed, and everyone they tell the story to is amazed. Some of the glory of uh, grand illumination fades after a little bit, and what's implied here is that the glory of what they hear from the shepherds fades for some as well, that many are wowed but not transformed, that they are entertained but not converted, and that the magic of Christmas might for them be here for a month but they find that it's gone in a day. Okay, because it says in verse 18, there's this whole group, everybody wonders, but then there's this contrast in verse 19, if you look. It says, everybody wonders, and then verse 19, but, but Mary. And then he's going to go on and talk about the shepherds. Everybody wonders, but there's a different, further kind of response. And we're going to see this in Mary and the shepherds. Let's take the shepherds verse uh, first. Uh, verse 11 and 12, what were they told? The the, the Shepherds were told by the angels, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angels show up, they, they give them this message, and then the shepherds have a choice, don't they? What are they going to do next? Okay, lights blazing, grand illumination, and then it's dark again. What are they going to do? They could have done this. They could have looked at each other and just said, wow, that was weird. You know, what did you put in the soup tonight? Uh, And they could have stirred the pot and set the fire and gone to bed. But they didn't. What did they do? They take the message that's given to them by these angels, and they follow the directions they've been given. They go and look for this Savior. They, they, They hike to Bethlehem, and they go and find this man, this woman, in this barn, and find this baby that is beyond... Uh, their wildest imaginations. Because for them, 
They act on what they know, and their wonder leads ultimately to their transformation. They heard in a very personal way what the angel said to them. I bring you great news of joy, for unto you is born this day. They heard the angels, and they received it, and they take it in. And how do the angels, or excuse me, how do the shepherds, uh, respond as they leave the presence of Mary and Joseph and this newborn baby king. What does it say? They go away giving glory to God, rejoicing, transformed by what they've experienced. Their wonder has led to transformation. And then we see Mary, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Okay, the, the wider group, they wonder and maybe it fades. What does it say Mary does? She takes it in. She ponders it. She chews on it. One commentator says this. this uh, it's an indication of an extended period of sustained reflection by someone trying to make sense and plumb the depths of all she has experienced. Mary had a faith that was seeking understanding. If you know the Gospel of Luke, for Mary, this was at times a long and hard journey. There's a passage, a place in the in the, gospel, uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching, he's healing, and Mary shows up with Jesus' half-brothers, and they come to take Jesus home because they think he's gone crazy. Who exactly does he think he is? They come to take him home because they still don't get who Jesus is. Mary, who's experienced all this, pondering it in her heart. But we see Mary again at Jesus' side at the cross as he is crucified. And we see Mary three days later at the empty tomb when Jesus has been raised again. Mary, pondering these things in her heart and over time coming to a fuller understanding of what is happening and what has happened in the middle of this night in this barn with this baby. She is laid in a manger. She takes it away and she ponders. And ultimately, she too is transformed by what happens at Christmas. Okay, so what about us? What about you? Maybe you're a Christian you find this Christmas that your heart has grown uh, a little dull and cold and distant. I mean, you, you read what we've got before us and you believe it, uh, but if you're honest with yourself, you feel like it's making very little difference maybe in your life right now. Little transformative power in your life, little joy, little resilience in the face of hardship, little love for God or for others, what do you need, what do we need to personalize it, to take it in again, to hear the angels saying this to us, I bring you great news of joy, for unto you is born this day a Savior. Should we be like Mary, ponder it and chew on it and take it in. Maybe you're here this morning. Uh, and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're not really sure, maybe you've never given yourself to this and you know it, but you're curious. Well, maybe for you, taking in Christmas begins with wrestling with this question. What is holding you back from following Jesus? Did you know the story? We've read it this morning. You know the story? You've seen the Christmas specials. You know what this story tells us about who Jesus is and what he has done. But this little baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, Lord, and King. Are you willing to do what Mary does? To see Christmas from above as well as from below. To ponder, to consider, 
to find an answer to your questions. So maybe for you, pondering this begins with understanding what it is that's stopping you from following Jesus. Are you missing information? Are there parts of the story that you don't know and you need to read and you need to ask and you need to learn? Or is your struggle um, intellectual? There are parts of this story that somehow don't fit with your view of the world and are a stretch to you and they're contrary to the way you see everything and you're not sure what to do with it. Or is it maybe even more basic than that for you? You've got a sense that if what we read here is true, if the Christmas story is true, if Jesus really is Savior and Lord and King, then following him means that we owe him everything. If he's really Lord, all of our lives belong to him. And so you know that if, or sense that if you're going to follow him, that there is no going back. And you have to jump in with both feet, and it takes everything. Maybe you're scared of that or angry about that or confused by that. So my encouragement to you would be this Christmas, if you're going to take it in, what is the question for you? What is the point where you need to ask, what is this all about and what am I going to do with it? Wherever we are, the reality of Christmas, we need to see it from above and below. and We must personalize it. We must take it in. Let me wrap up just with this. Charlie Brown, the end of the cartoon. You remember how it ends? All the kids, after hearing this Christmas story, they walk out into the snow and they set up the Christmas tree and they begin to sing this song. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And they begin to decorate the tree. And Charlie Brown's little Christmas tree suddenly transformed, glorious, beautiful, glory coming out of obscurity and darkness and bringing light on Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open up to us the glory of Christmas, which is in fact the glory of Jesus, our King, our Savior, born in such obscurity that he might come and rescue us. He took on flesh that he might know what it is to live in a body like this, to suffer in a broken and fallen world like this, to do so without sin, without faltering, perfectly, taking on a death that we deserve, that we might receive life everlasting. And in many ways it begins here in this barn, in this manger, with this baby who is our king. We look to you, Lord Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.